0: Hi everyone, just a note before we start, this episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault.
1: The more I dug, the more I discovered, wow, it's all over us, it's all around People weren't thinking about it, but when I began to ask, and I went over to Geneva and hung out with people I knew at the UN, and they said, oh, look at our files. We've got tons of cases of this kind of stuff, but nobody's interested in. And then I began to pull all of that together. I got my students to begin pulling it together. We built a a database of all the countries in the world and tried to figure out how much slavery there was. It was pretty rough and ready. Uh, But every time we looked, we found more. And that's what got me going on it.
0: Hello and welcome back to Floodlight, a podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective that looks to raise awareness of modern slavery by sharing stories and speaking to interesting people that are looking to combat it in their own way. I'm Eugenie.
2: And I'm Jules. And for the last nine years, we've been passionate about fighting against slavery in all its forms, wherever it is found throughout the world. There are currently more than 40 million people in slavery across the world today. That's more than at any other time in human history. So it's very much a modern problem, and those most likely to be affected
0: are women and children. So where to start this week? Well, this episode we caught up with Kevin Bales, who is one of the world's leaders when it comes to the fight against modern slavery. Kevin is a professor of contemporary slavery and research director of the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. He's written award-winning books and research papers and is involved with more anti-slavery organisations than we can even begin to count. Kevin spoke
2: to us about his academic studies around modern slavery and potential solutions and his work at the Wrights Lab, the world's largest group of modern slavery researchers. He is a global leader in this space and it was a pleasure to sit down with him.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us and for being part of our lovely podcast that we've just started. Um, It is so great to see you on the screen, but also actually hear your lovely, smooth voice in our ears today. So thank you for joining us. Would you just tell our listeners a bit about you and what you do and who you are? And we'd love to hear a bit more.
1: Sure. They may have already read that my name is Kevin Bales and that I um, work on contemporary forms of slavery. And I've... Uh, had a career in which I sort of swing back and forth between academic work and activist work and political work, but all of it aimed at human rights and doing things about contemporary forms of slavery. And at the moment, I'm the research director of something called the Rights Lab at the University of Nottingham. Uh, and it's something that's a bit of a dream come true for me because uh, after working in this space for a very long time, where it was all a bit, well, bitty and, 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 uh, and, and poor. you know, There wasn't a lot of resources in terms of money, and there wasn't a lot of great research either to help us understand the problem. Uh, we've now built up a team of about 100 researchers within the Wrights Lab, all focusing on contemporary forms of slavery. And it makes it one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life to work with people whose brains are so much bigger than mine and so far stretched in so many different directions, like satellite imagery or uh, machine learning and AI, uh, and how we apply all of those things to bring it into contemporary slavery.
2: And who, who set up the Rights Lab and why and, and when?
1: Well, it, it's been about almost five years now that we set it up. And it was um, a very happy coincidence that the University of Nottingham at, at that particular time was feeling a bit flush. Uh, they had built up some cash reserves and they said, you know, we're, we're already world number one in two or three areas like um, MRI, which was invented at, at, at Nottingham. And and they said, we want to be world number one in other areas. So they actually put a call out across the university saying, if you think you can put together a team and become world number one in a special field, let's, let's talk about it. They were expecting it all to be... Um, atomic powered helicopters or who knows what right all kind of heavy tech stuff and when we came along and said no we want to we want to bring it into contemporary slavery and we want to be world number one in that they were both intrigued and i think uh, a little excited about it because we're so much less expensive than people who want to buy nuclear reactors and scanning electron microscopes. All we need are laptops and desks and, and, and a few plane tickets. So uh, as it turned out, uh, we were chosen to be one of these beacons of excellence. And that's how the Wrights Lab got started.
0: I actually came to visit the Wrights Lab, um, gosh, back in 2017, I think, or maybe 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were showing me about satellites um, finding brick kilns in India. Um, That's right. And that was one of the projects. And that was so interesting. And is that something that you started off there with your research? Or did, was that, how did that come about?
1: Well, it came about in part because uh, quite a few years ago, I mean, when I first got involved in doing the re- work that would lead to the book that I wrote called Disposable People, which was all the way back in the 1990s, one of, there were moments. Uh, particularly when I was doing research in Brazil, where there was slavery in the in the forests in Brazil, where people were using slaves to cut down the forest to burn it to make charcoal, which would then feed into the Brazilian steel industry. And I remember having this moment where I'm way out in the in the forest, far away from roads, and suddenly thinking, you know, these these kilns and these places where they're burning all the forest. I said, you could see this from space. I'm sure you could see this from space. Now, this was in the 90s. And, and later, when they finally invented Google Earth, I got on Google Earth and went to see if I could see those places I had been. And they were there. I could see them. And I thought, wow, I can see slavery from space. But it took a long time before I was able to um, make the connections with the right people. And the right people turned out to be in the next building to mine at the university of Nottingham, where there is a significant team of satellite imagery experts who use, who have been using satellites for a long time to do things like confront global warming and climate change and migration and so forth. And when we said, could we try looking at some of these other things like brick kilns in India, which have a lot of slavery? They said, Oh, I don't know about that, you know, but let's, we could have a look. And before we knew it, we were, we had, um, been able to not just see the brick kilns but train uh, through machine learning a very clever computer it's not wasn't quite the, the the extent of artificial intelligence but it was machine learning and train a computer basically to identify brick kilns in the imagery so the eye people didn't have to eyeball it and so within hours of computing time it it figured out that there were in fact something like 57 thousand three hundred eighty two Brick kilns in India. It knew exactly where all of them were, and it could tell the old ones from the new ones, and the ones that weren't working from the ones that were working, and the ones that were in the areas which are most likely to have enslaved workers. And that was just a bang—it's almost instantaneous breakthrough after a long wait of trying to think it through and see if we could wow. make it happen.
2: And, and what other what other examples do you have at the at the Wrights Lab of technology technology being used to combat trafficking in similar ways? Because that's a brilliant example.
1: There's a there's a very good example. There's, a, there's another team that works particularly on machine learning, and and they use that to construct what they call data tiles, which basically mean overlays that go on top of, again, geographical mapping. But but it's much more than the visual. So they, they load people onto the ground, and they have people asking people questions. They do a lot of this work in East Africa, particularly in uh, Tanzania, and they study... Uh, the locations of, of cash transfers that are going on by studying the telephone traffic, both the telephone calls that people are having on their, on their mobile phones, but also the cash transfers and the other types of data that's moving across. They get access to all of that data, then they layer that with satellite imagery. They layer that with criminal statistics. They layer that with uh, interviews on the ground with people who say, do you feel safe about being in this place? Or what do you know about that kind of activity? And before you know it, it's a kind of multiple variable creative space where... There, there, these new kinds of statistics that are way beyond, I have to admit it, even though I was trained in statistics, are way beyond my understanding of some of them, um, begin to say, ah, well, if would we put all of these things together in ways that you wouldn't normally measure, uh, it begins to tell us where we should look, what we should look for, and how we might be able to solve some of the problems of enslavement in cities like Dar es Salaam.
0: That sounds so interesting. And you say you were studying statistics that's how you were trained at university i mean where did you go to, to uni
1: oh i went to university at the university of oklahoma i grew up in a little town on the prairie out in oklahoma and um and the and the nearest biggest university <laughs> that I could get to was the University of Oklahoma, which is not a bad university, but not one of the great uh, universities on the planet Earth either. Uh, but it was a very exciting place for me.
0: When did modern slavery, or your? I know that you're a professor of modern slavery. When did you um, become that? Was it at Oklahoma, or was it much? Older?
1: Oh gosh, no. I mean i i <laughs> I, I was a, I was a a kid from the countryside, and I didn't know doodly squat. Uh, even when I went off to university. I mean I, I discovered in my first year at university that there was this this class that I took only because I it fit into my schedule and and it was called anthropology and I, I I'd never heard of it and I took the class and I realized this is that stuff I've always loved, but I didn't even know it had a name. So I dropped my I actually gave back my scholarship, which was in journalism and and, and switched over to study anthropology, which took me in a into a long career of social sciences and anthropological sociological type work. The bumping into contemporary forms of slavery didn't happen until I had moved to to Britain to be a student at the London School of Economics for a a master's and a PhD. And I had done a number of jobs that had to do with human rights groups and, um, and human rights campaigns. And one day when I was at a big event on the South Bank in London, there was a table uh, set up by a tiny group I'd never heard of called Anti-Slavery International. And they had a, a, a leaflet on that table that said, there are millions of slaves in the world today. And I looked at that leaflet. And as a person who had studied statistics and had studied social research and had studied social movements, I thought, that can't be true. Millions of slaves in the world. Today. Everybody knows that slavery ended in the 19th century. And... I started to just throw it away. And then I looked inside and there were anecdotes, you know, a story of a, of a woman from Poland enslaved in Britain into commercial exploitation and a boy from Sri Lanka who was a camel jockey in, in the UAE and so forth. And I thought, well wait, anecdotes don't make millions. That, that can't work. So I, I took it home with me and went off to the library the next day and began to do some searching and to say, well, if there, because I thought if, there, if this is true, it's astounding. And if it's false, they need to be, they need to shut up. I mean, they need to be debunked. You can't go around saying there's some huge problem that's not there. So the more I dug, the more I discovered, wow, it's all over us. It's all around People weren't thinking about it, but when I began to ask, and I went over to Geneva and hung out with people I knew at the UN, and they said, oh, look at our files. We've got tons of cases of this kind of stuff but nobody's interested in. And then I began to pull all of that together. I got my students to begin pulling it together. We built a a database of all the countries in the world and tried to figure out how much slavery there was. It was pretty rough and ready, Uh, but every time we looked, we found more, and that's what got me going on it. And, I, and, and in the end, I realized I had to go into the field and look at it up close if I was going to understand it.
2: And Kevin, can you remember that first time you went into the field and witnessed human trafficking or modern slavery for the first time, firsthand? And, and how did that make you feel?
1: Oh, I can absolutely remember it. In fact, there's sort of two steps to it. Because the first time I was really, in a sense, in the field was when I went to France outside Paris and met with a woman who had just come out of being enslaved since she was 9 years old and now she was about 1920 and she had just come out of this enslavement as a as a kind of abused servant in a in a big house in paris and she was a she was a a, a woman from north africa a girl she had been a small girl from north africa and i and it was having a conversation with her and interviewing her to try to get an understanding that the big, the big wake up to me at that moment was I didn't have a clue. I I was asking her questions that you would ask in innocence, but ignorance, you know, I was like, well, how do you feel now that you can make choices? You know, now you're not a slave, you can make choices. And she's like, what's a choice? I don't, you know, people keep telling me I need to make choices, but I don't even know what a choice is. Uh-huh. Like, what is it? Cho- what is this thing you keep calling choice? And, you know, I know I'm supposed to like it, but I don't know what it is. No one will show me one of these things. And then I backed up in my questioning and realized, wow. So I s- there, was a, there was a lamp in the room that looked like a globe. And I said, you know, what about the fact of the, the, the earth is now available to you? And she said, what do you mean the earth? And I said, well, like that globe. She said, I see a light there, but what is that thing? And I realized she didn't know. She had lost all of that. She didn't know oh. the seasons. She didn't know the names of the seasons. She didn't know that they came and went. She didn't know. I mean, she had been locked away. And that I, I began to understand at that moment not the profound theft of life that slavery means mm-hmm. in a person's life. And that was before I was really even in the field, just having a conversation with someone who had just come out of slavery. Yeah, that was a, that was a powerful moment.
2: One of the things that you've done a lot of research in is the kind of relationship between environmental destruction and modern slavery. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about your research and your findings, and most importantly, what your advice is for the path ahead?
1: Oh, I'd love to. Uh, It's an area that, that it took me a while to see myself, even though I was in places with people who were in slavery Who were being forced to destroy the natural world around them to feed someone else's greed it took me a little while to to widen my own viewpoint past the people in front of me who were being abused to the environment around me that was being abused and in time though i began to realize this is a this is a relationship which is much deeper and much more fraught than i had imagined it to be so i went looking into that more precisely, uh, and did a large project, which became a book called blood and earth. And, and the point of it is simply this, um, there's a, there's a, a deep, hard and fast relationship between slavery, environmental destruction, and the supply chains that, we, that feed us a lot of the things that we buy. Uh, and it could be the minerals that go into electronics or it could be the cotton in our clothes and it goes on and on like that or the, some of the food that we eat. But the point is it's the triangle of destruction of the environment, slavery causing that, uh, people in slavery being forced to cause that destruction and then both of those things feeding into the supply chains so that we become not culpable, but certainly uh, you know, accomplices within in that process. The, the, the factoid, that there's a one little illustrative factoid that, that came out of that research that in some ways says the whole thing, which is if you take all of the deforestation and other types of work that slaves are forced to do that emit CO2 into the air, and then you put all that together and you say, well, if slave, what, 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 where does that stand in terms of the CO2 emissions? And well, it turns out that if slavery were a country... It'd be a small country. It's only about 40 million people, and it would be a poor country, but it would be the third largest country in the world in terms of carbon emissions after China and the United States. So slavery as an activity puts out more carbon emissions than all of Europe and all any one of the countries of Europe. It's a huge amount, and it's primarily because not of uh, coal-fired power plants it's about deforestation and the dist- and literal destruction of the environment because you know when you destroy things like mangrove forests and other forests or or the forests in the amazon you're you're just releasing vast amounts of carbon into the air that actually is horrific and at the same time i realized extremely hopeful i think because it means that if we did mobilize effective law enforcement and intervention today against people who are being used in the, you know, in the, in the natural world around the world in slavery, we could, we could cut off that carbon emission. We could stop that carbon emission. It's so much easier than trying to get everyone to get off airplanes or trying to shut down all the factories. I mean, it's, it was, it's actually, you do one good thing and it leads to another good thing. It's a win-win. So I'm excited about it in that sense, if we can move people along to it.
2: So essentially, if you if you eradicate modern slavery, you're also eradicating the third largest country in terms of carbon emissions.
1: That's exactly right. Seems like a win-win. It is, I think it is a win-win. It, it wouldn't be all slavery, but I mean, there's some types of slavery that don't necessarily add CO2 to the atmosphere, but you could focus in, which actually makes the job a little easier. So you don't have to end all slavery, not that I don't want to end, I do want to end all slavery, but you could start in that space. And also, you could you could you could actually take one step further to make it a win win win, and that is you take the people who have been enslaved, who now need jobs and want jobs, and you say, how would you like to have a very well paid job replanting the forest you just were made to cut down?
0: I am um, going to go back a bit in history and ask you about your time when you first heard about modern slavery, because Jules and I obviously have started out in this field, sort of to. 2012 I think it was but I always find it amazing that you've been doing this for like 20 to 30 years a long time and 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 what I find incredible is that there are people like you professors or you know people in education people around the world who've already been fighting for this you know for ending this epidemic but yet you know we've come in in the last however many years nine years but what's it like having started the conversation off, you know, in the 80s or whatever, and now to see the conversation happening.
1: Oh, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's really <laughs> exciting. And it's exciting for so many reasons because, you know, A, you know, conversations are better the more people you get into them, right? Because you get so many more points yeah. of view and you get so much energy and you get so many new ideas and so forth. But it's also exciting because the conversation in the beginning of this, like if you go back 20 years, the conversation was, uh, how do you define that? Does it really exist? I don't think that's true. What? I mean, I mean, that, that was sort of the whole conversation and and it was like having that conversation for at least 10 years got really boring about just saying, no, it really is here. Uh, no, it's not about, uh, people just doing this or that, you know, it's, it t- totally exists and here's how we get there. And, and, uh we're we're through that now. We're we're that's over now. We don't have to have arguments about definitions. We don't have to have arguments about is it true or not. We know it's true. We know how to define it. We know how to look for it and so forth. And now the conversation has really changed to much more about right, how do we fix it? How do we get there? How do we how do we er- eradicate it by 2030? I think that's a little ambitious, but Uh, According to the UN wants to eradicate it by 2030, but I'm certainly behind the concept and we have lots of people coming in with these great new ideas. I would never have understood how to do this with machine learning and artificial intelligence. I would never have known how to do this with satellites. I would never have known how to do this with corpus linguistic inquiries into textual relations and stuff like that. I, I mean, this is it's powerful. And recently, I've been learning a lot about, this is going to sound a little crazy, but midwifery. Wow. Right? About what's happening in the UK with the fact that about a quarter of all the women who come out of slavery in the United Kingdom are pregnant. And they're pregnant not through choice, but through either rape or being caught up in commercial sexual exploitation. And what that does in terms of confounding their liberation, but also in the fact that the child they're carrying can either be for them seen as one more assault that was placed upon them or a way into a future and a new life. Now, that, I think, is so powerful, the idea that that birth can become a new life. And there's a group called the happy baby community, which is in fact has been very quietly working with hundreds of these women, training midwives and doulas and showing people how to take women who had been neglected, pregnant women who had been neglected through the birthing process, because people didn't understand that they did actually conceived in slavery. And now we're having the opportunity to give birth in freedom and what that could mean. To me, this is mind blowing and just heartbreaking.
2: And in a way, the midwives are also your kind of first line of defence because they can help detect young women
1: precisely and, and
2: determine whether they have been trafficked or not.
1: Yes, a lot of these young women are um, have come into the NRM, you know, the National Referral Mechanism, yeah. and in part, sometimes they've been dumped, and sometimes they're still under people cause people's control. But having midwives and doulas and other uh, hospital and medical personnel, aware of the warning signs, it means that intervention can occur. And when they understand that, they can actually remove, you know, they can, they, they can, in a sense, put this, their arms of protection around these young women and help them into a different space and place and protective space and so forth. And then, of course, also help them through that birthing process, which ain't easy.
0: Just for our listeners who don't know what the NRM is, as you rightly said, it's the National Feral Mechanism and um, it's uh, basically the government-run system in which um, people who have been detected, uh, who have been in modern slavery or enslaved, um, go through into sort of a 90-day waiting period with the government where they're looked after, they're protected and they can sort of get away from their trafficker and, and try and, and get a new life before um, moving on to the next part of their life. That's, that's what a national referral mechanism is.
2: Kevin, being a professor and uh, working in education, how can Eugenie and I play a role in making sure that the next generation of people and the anti-slavery collective's loyal following base, how can we make sure that everyone is educated as to what modern slavery is in 2021?
1: Oh, Jules, you're asking me, you know, like to tell granny how to suck eggs. I mean, you, you two knew how to talk. Uh, You knew to know how to communicate. You know, you, you live in a, you truly live in a world, which is about social media, right? Much more than a crusty old prof like me. Um, So, you know, I don't know that I could teach you much of anything except to say, or to say how to do that, except to say, you know, you put clear ideas in front of people, you give them a narrative arc, you tell them stories that break their heart. And, uh, and then you open the door to with resources and say, Oh, if that means a lot to you, try reading this book or watching this film or, 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 or having another conversation. The good news is, you know, it's, for most young people it's there it's you know it it it's not hard to say slavery sounds like a really bad idea and if it's really out there happening to people like me then i want to do what i can about it
0: well speaking of um tools that we can learn from i actually have your book sitting next to me just (laughs) winking at me ready ready to read blood and earth but um You've written so many books, haven't you, Kevin? And you've done so many amazing things. Um, what is what's next on the agenda for you?
1: Oh well, there's there's just you know there are projects at the Rights Lab that I that I'm very excited about, and they're in a sense some of them are just extensions of the things that are happening with things like uh, observations from space. I've been looking a lot lately at the relationship between slavery and conflict. And I've been building both databases and interviewing and looking carefully at how children and women and men are caught up in in slavery by armed forces. And part part of that has been, in fact, a strange little side job, which has come up of building training materials for all of the U.S. United States military.
2: Wow.
1: So that... These training materials will spread out across all of their forces around the planet and say, hey, here you are based in Southern Africa or here you are based in East Asia. Here's here's hotspots and warning signs of where you would be seeing slavery and trafficking in those sorts of zones. And here's how, what it would look like if you were actually in a conflict zone or if there were you know, enemy combatants who are enslaving people. And here's what you, how you could understand it, and here's how you could move toward liberation. I never dreamed that I would be able to advise the U.S. military, global military, and like how to look for slavery and maybe help reduce it and help people out of it. But hey... That's kind of a fun side job.
2: Kevin, um, I'm told that the Association of British (laughs) Universities named your work as one of the top 100 world changing discoveries of the last 50 years. That's a hell of an accolade to live up to, but it's pretty clear that you are definitely living up to it and that the next 50 years are going to be full of more groundbreaking discoveries. Um, Thank you so much for sharing (laughs) some of those with us here today and for spending time with the Anti Slavery Collective. It's been such a
1: always love seeing you guys talking to you guys anytime very happy to
0: thank you for listening to today's episode of floodlight and a very big thank you to kevin for joining us make sure you join us next week where we'll be chatting to none other than cindy mccain the absolute powerhouse she's a successful diplomat and businesswoman who is on the board of the mccain institute who are pivotal in the protection of human rights all across the world You can also be an activist and join us in the fight
2: against modern slavery by visiting our website, theantislaverycollective.org. And if you want to learn more about what we've discussed on today's episode, head to the show notes and follow the links. Our mission is to raise awareness about modern slavery. Please help us by sharing and posting about this podcast
0: please make sure you subscribe to Floodlight wherever you're listening and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to know about your own activism and who you'd like us to speak to next time. So see you next week.
2: Floodlight is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.